Good morning to us in the room. Um, welcome to the Brook. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and grab it and meet me in Ephesians chapter 3. Good morning to those who are joining us online, uh, back live. Uh, we ended pre-recording uh, last week, and so praise God uh, for that. See, that's funny, Mal. I, I know your voice, uh, Mal, from all of that, uh, but thank you to the media team for all of that and um, just kind of where we are back to be able to join in to live. And so again, if you're joining us live, man, praise God. I do think it's necessary to say this in light of that, um, that regardless of how we're connecting, the goal is that at whatever pace we're comfortable with, we can move forward together. All right? That's the end game. In person, online, is that we can move forward together. Uh, that means listening to each other well. It means choosing to love well. It means refusing to choose suspicion over trust. Seeking to move forward together well, regardless of whatever pace in the journey we are. Cool? Cool beans? Awesome. Let me pray, then we'll dive um, into the text and in our time. God, that last song is, that is the series, God, burden into our souls, onto the Lamb who sits on the throne, be glory and honor and praise. God, I pray, we pray together that you would make that true in our hearts and that you would use our time together through the text um, to do it, that you would unfold for us the scope of your greatness and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. We are starting uh, exploration into one of the most significant and pervasive ideas in the entire Bible. It's one of the most significant and pervasive ideas in all of human history, the glory of God. And the next four weeks is a deep dive into that pervasive concept that changes everything, that we would get a God-sized view of God, that we would let him set the terms for who he is and how we should see him and interact with him, exploring glory. Now, let me give you a definition of glory. I think it's fair to first say that there's a lot smarter people than me. And I would also say that those smarter people are smart enough to know that you can't really summarize the inexhaustible nature of who God is. Not possible. However, for our sake, I do want to give us a definition that could be helpful as we work through the glory of God. The glory of God is the uniqueness and greatness of his attributes and actions. That's glory. The glory of God, as we understand through the scriptures, the summation that we can walk away to is the glory of God is the uniqueness and greatness of his attributes and actions. And at the very center of the glory of God, the very center of his attributes and actions is this idea, holiness. That God is utterly beautiful, morally perfect, altogether different. He's holy. We sung it, holy, holy, holy. In fact, he is so beautiful, utterly. He is so morally perfect, altogether different, that there are creatures, angels, whose very existence is to tell the universe that he's holy. 
So they encircle him, they encircle the throne of heaven. This is Isaiah 6, saying, holy, holy, holy. That's not the only thing that they're saying. You keep going, Isaiah 6, 3 says, they encircle the throne of heaven, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is filled with his glory. So at the very center of the attributes and actions, the unique greatness of the God who is, is his utter beauty, his moral perfection, his altogether differentness. He's holy and it makes him glorious in ways that no one else can touch. Now, what is even more magnificent is the scriptures, God goes through great lengths to reveal the extent of his uniqueness and the extent of his greatness, the extent of his glory, so that people would enjoy him forever. And nothing is off limits for God to reveal how unique and great he is. What we see, though, even though nothing is off limits for God to use to reveal his glory, there is a pathway that God prefers to take. More on that later, but now, what is fascinating is that out of all of the ways God could make his name great, which is to glorify, he could glorify himself, out of all the ways, it seems that what the scriptures want us to see, that right alongside his holiness, the chosen way, the preferred means of making his name great is by demonstrating and extending tremendous mercy. So ex Exodus 34, Moses, you know, the we talked about last week, show me your glory, God. Tell me who you are. I want to know you. God is going to describe who he is and tell of his uniqueness and greatness. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God who is gracious. That the introduction is mercy, and you don't have to search far in the scriptures. It is situation after situation, circumstance after circumstance, instance after instance, where you run into a God who delights in mercy triumphing over judgment. That God chooses to reveal the uniqueness and greatness of his name by extending tremendous mercy. It's good. As we just get a God-sized view of God today, prayerfully, and over the next few weeks, I feel I need to say something. This is an opportunity to chase the curiosity. In fact, like last week, the application isn't going to be like, go and do. You, I, don't, I don't really have that for us. And I don't think the text implies that per se. The application is sit, reflect, explore, engage, to chase the curiosity, to tease out the ideas that are developed when we stare in the face of glory. When we stare into the face of greatness, to tease out those ideas, to chase that curiosity, especially through the text. God delights in making himself glorious, that we would see him. And if he is glorious, there's some things that should take place. I'm going to give us three key questions that I just want us to work through for the rest of the series, really the rest of our 
lives. And then I'm going to move on uh, to the text. I'm going to get lost in the layers here. We had dinner last night. We were talking with people. I'm just like, Ephesians is doing work uh, for me. But let me give you the three questions. If God is glorious as he makes himself out to be, if God is as glorious as he makes himself out to be, question one, where in my life is God's glory seen or felt the least and why? If God is as glorious as he makes himself out to be, then where in my life is his glory seen or felt the least and why? Explore. Chase the curiosity. Question two. If God is as glorious as he makes himself out to be, what could I dare to believe him for? What could I dare to believe him for? That's Ephesians 3 in particular is going to help us. And then the last question, if God is as glorious as he makes himself out to be, what would I dare to do for him? What would such greatness demand of my life? What would I dare to do? Now, sit in all of that. Today is the starting point where I want us to just stare at the excellencies of God as revealed through Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. There's layers here. There's a depth here. There's, there's richness here. It's staggering. There's the sheer volume of ideas that these few verses develop is staggering. And we don't have the time to work through all of them, but we are going to work through a few. In fact, what I want to do is I just want to work through a few few of the ideas that this text develops, the staggering ones, and then I want to tease out this insertion, which is also an assertion that Paul makes, to him be glory in the church. And then that's how we're actually going to close with teasing out that assertion that Paul makes here. So developing some of the staggering ideas in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 21 through 21, and then closing with Man, that idea, to him be glory in the church. Would you read with me? Uh, And then we'll take it bit by bit. And forgive me if I get lost, because man, I just, amen. I'm talking to myself, it's cool. It reads like this, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. A few verses, the volume of ideas, I'm going to say it's really hard to quantify. There's so much here. So much here. Now let's scratch the surface a bit, though. Have you seen Hook? Robin Williams in his prime, right? May God rest his soul. One of the greatest comedians of all time. And so, Hook, Jumanji, Mrs. Doubtfire, Patch, they were all in that same uh, space. I commend to you, if you haven't seen those movies, you have my pastoral permission to go watch those, all right? But in Hook, it's the story of him being Peter Pan and then having to reclaim his title as Pan. And so there's one, that one scene in the movie, Rufy, oh, right? So there's that one scene where the Lost Boys are trying to get him to fly again. And what they're essentially saying is, you know, Peter, you just need to think better thoughts. You need to think more excellent thoughts, and then you'll be able to recapture this magic that you lost when you grew up and you left Neverland. Think better. 
Now, often whenever I see Ephesians 3.20 and I hear it preached, that's kind of the air that is created. Ephesians 3.20, now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than anything we could think or ask according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That just means think better. That's the air that often surrounds this text. That's there. We should have excellent thoughts regarding the nobility that we're confronted with, but this text is more than that. And if you believe that, consider this your disarming. Have you seen Inception? Top five movies of all time. Fight me, all right? <laughs> I'm so serious. <laughs> Leo, amen. He should have got up. That's a losing myself. But there's that one scene in Inception where Ames and Arthur are having a conversation. You know, they just got attacked, and so they're in this garage, and Arthur pulls out like this machine gun, and he's shooting. And Ames is like, Arthur, my boy, in his British accent, I don't have it. And he's like, you dream too small. You need to dream bigger. And he pulls out this huge bazooka. It's a glorious movie, top five. That is also the air that seems to hover around this passage. Now Tim was able to do far more abundantly we could think and ask. What that means is we just need to dream bigger. And that's true. If you're a Christian, what you know or need to know is that your prayer life rises and falls on who you believe God to be and what you believe God is capable of. So this passage that essentially says God has a measurable capacity, he is able, should invite us to dream bigger. But it's so much more than that. This is not think better, dream bigger. That is not the goal of this. What Paul is doing through Ephesians 3, 20 through 21, is he is putting a bullseye on the hearts of all of us, and he's forcing us to deal with the question, who do we believe God to be? What do we believe about him? He is putting a bullseye on our hearts and saying, encounter the God who is. He is able. And the depths of this passage go on and on and on and on because that's the way Paul is after. So we can look at the preceding verses. So Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 19, what Paul is doing is Paul is making a request. He's making requests, and the request he's making is staggering. He is saying, God, for this reason, I bow my knees before you, the Father from whom every family on earth is named, and I am asking you to do something that seems impossible. Will you strengthen us in our inner being so that we would have the capacity to know that which is knowable but seems to surpass knowledge, the love of God? Christ, would you help us, strengthen us so that we can wrap our minds and our hearts and our arms around this multidimensional love? What is the height and the depth, the breadth and the width of the love of God? It's so big and so massive. It's immeasurable that we need your immeasurable capacity to even begin to know it, make sense of it, and experience it. Do you get that? 
The love of God is so massive, it takes the entire power of God for us to know it, make sense of it, and experience it. God's love goes beyond us. Run fast and far from anyone who talks about it as if they've mastered it. Run fast and far from anyone who talks about the love of God conceptually, not experientially. God's love is huge. And the way the scriptures paint his love is that it doesn't begin with us at all. That it is birth in the heart of a God who is kind, that desires to be known and desires to pour out his kindness on people, which means God loves fully regardless of who we are. Where you are now, God loves you fully. There is zero that you could do to add to it, zero that you could do to take away from it. God's immeasurable love is deployed towards you in full through Christ. Now unto him who's able to strengthen us to actually believe that, to live in light of it. There's a weight here. The weight continues when we, when we look at that, that phrase, according to the power at work within us, according to the power already at work in us. There is a truth that we should just sit with. God in his wisdom has determined that the way he's going to accomplish certain things is through the prayers of his people. That he won't act until we pray. Now Jesus says this, you have not, because you ask not. It's not a lack of willingness in the heart of God. It's a lack of courage and confidence to open our mouths to speak and make requests. So there's a way that God has chosen that he will operate only through the prayers of people. However, that doesn't make God any less free, and it doesn't mean that he isn't already at work. That's what we just, the power already working within us. God is working within you, if you're a Christian particularly, without you ever even uttering a word. And his work in you is attached to this force, this ocean of immeasurable capacity. There is a nuclear-sized bomb of the power of God at work in your soul. What can't you overcome? Non-Tim is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever think or ask according to the power at work in us. There's more here. Not only is God already at work on our behalf, and it's powerful, we have to see the timing of this doxology. This is a doxology. It's a word of glory, and they're all throughout the scriptures. The New Testament is filled with them. We're going to get there. However, this word of glory is a capstone in Ephesians, right? So it is ending a, like a string of thoughts that Paul has from Ephesians 1 to Ephesians chapter 3. And what is absolutely fascinating is that in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, and Ephesians chapter 3, you don't get a single imperative. There is no cause to actions. 
They're just consistent descriptions of what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do, Ephesians chapter 1, working everything out according to his counsel for the praise of his glory. Ephesians chapter 2, that he is taking dead things, dead people, and making them alive, intersecting them with love. You were dead. You didn't want God. You didn't consider him. We didn't see him as he is. But God intersects us with love. And then he forms a people from all people, the church. This multi-ethnic contingent of misfits brought together so that God could display the greatness of his love for all to see. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. It's what God has done. It's what God was doing. It is what God will do. Not one imperative. Now, what is fascinating is that right after this great passage, this attribution of glory to God, we get imperative after imperative after imperative after imperative. Ephesians 4 on. I urge you, therefore, walk worthy in light of the call. Peripatia axios. Walk in a way that reflects the uniqueness and greatness of the God who is. That should show up in the way that you interact with your family. That should show up in the way that you interact in your marriage. That should show up the way you interact on your job, masters, servants, boss, workers, laborers. That should show up the way you interact with other people. Christians, that you would speak psalms towards them, wisdom, care for them, nourish them. That should show up the way you act with other people who don't know Christ. It's imperative after imperative after imperative. What we are meant to see about this glorious thing, glory, is that it should cause us to stand in awe and prepare us for action. Glory consumes us before it sends us out. The other thing we should see is that anything any Christian will ever do is attached to everything Christ has already done. And so we live from that place. We work from that place. We operate from that place of being consumed by the greatness of glory now onto him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could think or ask according to the power working in us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations forever and ever, amen. It's a doxology to direct our attention before it moves us to action. Now, the interesting thing about this doxology, got lost there a little bit, I got time. The interesting thing about this doxology is that insertion to him be glory in the church. There's thousands of doxologies. Paul who wrote Ephesians is fond of them. So we get Romans 16, 25 through 27, now unto him who is able to strengthen you through the gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to explain the mystery of the gospel before closing. To him be glory for 
forever. We get Paul saying this in Romans 11 where he talks about, oh, the depths and the richness of the wisdom of God. How unsearchable is your wisdom, unscrutable are your ways. Like who can know your mind, who could give you counsel? And then it goes down and says to him be glory. Paul says this again in Timothy, 1 Timothy, where he talks about to the only king, the only wise God who is immortal. Yet here, and then we even look at the ones Peter has and the one Jews had, none of them have this assertion to him be glory in the church. That should cause us to chase curiously. What is Paul getting at? There's at least three things that he is trying to produce in us. The first is he is reiterating the unique place of the church in all of human history. Ephesians is a book written to elevate the weight of the people of God together. This unique institution that is a family, the church, it is beyond a social organization. Right? Some of us join social organizations because we want a further good. Some people were marching and protesting in the summer because they're like, I got a further good. I want a further justice. I want a further broken things being made right. Some people join Habitat for Humanity. There's all sorts of social organizations that are beautiful and exist to further good. And we assume that is the church. The church is beyond that. Now, make no mistake, a church that is not a force for good or renewal has either forgotten her identity or forsaken her identity. It's part of who we are. But we go beyond a social organization or institution. We are the collection of broken stories being made whole by the fingerprint of God. Some of us are in a fraternity or sorority. When I was in college, I saw them. I was like, yeah. And I was partying too, so I was like, y'all wanna, what is that? I want that. Because I, it, it was just attractive, you know? And then it communicated this level, alpha, it communicated this level of solidarity and belonging. And there was this sense where it's like, if I join this organization, maybe this will help me advance in my career paths is going to open up doors, create some more opportunities. That's why some of you still have the letters that you have. The church is beyond that. You don't pay to be part of this thing. It's not why you tithe. I insert this money and now I have a therapist on call, call him a pastor. That's not the way this thing works. It's not, oh, yeah, yeah, I was lonely, and now I have this group of people that I can stand in solidarity with, so they look the same, they talk the same. No, we're all different. The church isn't a fraternity, it's a family. You can leave a fraternity. You can leave a sorority. You can stop paying dues. You can say, it's not doing it for me anymore. My children can't undo their DNA. It doesn't work that way. They will always be mine. 
if you are a Christian, you can't undo that. And God will have you forever tethered to other people, the church. Why is that significant that we need to reiterate that? And Paul is saying, as long as there's glory in Christ throughout all generations, may there be glory in his church. It's because if we're honest, over the last few years in particular, the church has taken some hits. And she seems irrelevant. She seems insignificant. She seems extracurricular. I am fine being a Christian not connected to a local church. You are not. And the church has wounded people. And the church will continue to wound people. But the way we heal from the wounds of the church is by being in the church. So this is a plea. Don't walk away from the church. Please. This is God's bride. He sees her in all of her imperfections, her scars, her hypocrisy, all of the ways she has failed to reflect him. And he says, but that is mine. And there will be a day where I will present her scars and all, but without blemish. Please do not walk away from her. Does it have to be this? It could be another, but don't walk away from this unique institution God has set up, the church. That took a lot of time. Now, there's more there. He's not just reiterating this unique place that the church occupies in all of history. He is reclaiming the unique way that the church reveals the glory of God. Now, there's a few ways I think that happens. When we just search the scriptures and we, we see how God is working through the life of his people, there's really two primary ways that we see that he wants to reveal his greatness. The first is God is revealing his greatness by allowing people to experience who he is. The experience of who God is immediately shows up in expressing him. This is why those doxologies are powerful, because they direct our attention to attributes of God and how he wants to make himself known, how he wants to be experienced. Take Romans 16 again. Now unto him who is able to strengthen you through the gospel. Think about that. Think about how that makes him glorious, how that makes his name great. Do you know what we do? When we want to elevate our greatness, it's often on the backs of other people. Some of you have bosses like that that take credit for your work. It's like when people are climbing up this ladder, we kick them down. That's why Miami even feels like crabs in a bucket. We maintain and magnify our greatness by keeping people weak, stay in your place. That's not what God does. God is making his name great by strengthening the weak. So if you're weak in here, wherever you're experiencing weakness, God says, yeah, I want you to experience this supernatural strength. Now onto him who is able to strengthen you. There's more. This is Jude. Now onto him who's able to 
keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That in life, there are so many things that just cause us to stay down, suffering being one of that. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks, the glory of God and suffering. There's so many things that break us and cause us to say, I'm out by God. And what Jude is saying is, there is a God who has capacity to preserve you through that which is difficult. Not only, though, is he preserving you through that which is difficult, he's protecting you with and producing for you tremendous joy in life. And he's making his name great by doing so. That we could experience the protecting persevering power of God and then express it. This is Romans 11. This is why it's so rich that God is inexhaustible. That we will never figure him out. But we could find life in the journey of trying, stopping to smell the roses of his greatness. And as we dive into the depths of his greatness, his unsearchable wisdom, his inscrutable ways. We're like, oh my God. We're allowed to glimpse the depths of the one who said, let there be light, and it was. God is making his name great through allowing people, the church, to experience him uniquely. That's not the only way, though. The other way is, it's unique church. God is actively renewing broken things in and around them. So there's this passage, maybe we're familiar with it. It's Psalm 51. Let me read it. Um, it says this, verses 7 through 15. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Do you see what's happening there? For those of us who aren't familiar with the context, this is David at one of the lowest points in his entire life. He has just committed rape. He has just committed murder by sending his most trusted soldier to the front line to die so that he could cover up his adultery and his sin. And then he gets caught. He doesn't confess. He gets caught. There's a difference there, by the way. He gets caught. And the weight of conviction consumes him. And the consequences continue. He loses his son, his child. The sword will never depart from his kingdom. So you look at his family lineage, and there's war after war. There's infighting. There's coups. And he sees all of this. And you know what is fascinating? The thing that he wants most 
is not circumstantial change. It's the restoration of relationship. God, I messed up, and I've moved away from you. God, don't move away from me. And the progression of this psalm is him saying, literally, as you renew me, I reveal you. As you start to deal with the depths of my brokenness and the sin in my heart, I will declare your praises. I will reveal you because what do I have to hide? If you can love me here in this moment, you can love me in whatever moment I find myself in. That is our story, by the way. We have nothing to hide if we're a Christian. Because what we are saying is that God loves us fully no matter what we will ever do. And we regularly and actively rebel against him and he chooses to extend great mercy. What do we have to hide? No mask. All of us, broken in some shape, form, or fashion, with the potential of being made whole again. And as God renews us, we reveal him. It's a unique portrayal of glory. But it's not just broken stuff inside us. It's broken stuff around us. So this is Isaiah 61. Jesus is going to quote this um, in Luke 4, but it's good to see it from Isaiah 61. It reads like this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, check this, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is work that's not just happening inside them. This is work that's happening around them, the binding of the brokenhearted the loosening of the captives, the comforting of those who are mourning, the healing of the sick. This is spiritual and social in nature. If you confuse that and you err one side or the other, you miss the weight of this. We're not going to over-spiritualize setting captives free. That happens both in terms of their soul and that happens in terms of bondage in real time. We're not going to over-spiritualize binding up people who have been assaulted. This is why Jesus, in Luke, when he says this and he announces the kingdom, he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me to do all of this, and he goes out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom throughout every city and every town. He's healing the sick and preaching the gospel. Both and, not either or. It's proclamation. 
through demonstration and declaration. We know this to be true because Matthew 5 tells us, and you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God is saying the way the way that the nations will know who I am is by my people being my people. The world will know glory as the church experiences it. The world will know glory as the church expresses it. This world-filling glory idea that we talked about in Psalm 72, it will only come to pass through the people of God being the people of God. There's a nobility there. There's a nobility for us, the church, reclaiming. But I close with this. It involves reimagination. Throughout all generations gives us context of the display. That's the canvas. 1994 is not 2014. 2014 is not 2021. Every single year, we are forced to ask the question, this year, what are the unique ways that we can show who God is? Furthermore, this is a church in Ephesus. This church that's surrounded by spiritual forces that are overt and expressive that there's demonic activity all around them. And so when, when Paul is speaking to this church, he is lifting up the excellencies of Christ, and he is saying, you need to model this in practical ways and in the ways that you pray. So he closes this glorious letter with this call to pray at all times. Ephesus modeled the glory of God uniquely in a way that Galatia did in a way, the church in Colossians did. You tracking with me? We should reimagine what does it mean for the church in Miami? I give you at least two things in closing. The first is we need to reclaim radical rest. Everybody's busy. Everybody's tired. Everybody's exhausted because everybody is attaching their identity to what they do and what other people think of them. And the Christian story is, there is a God who says, I love you perfectly, and all you have to do is rest in it and live from it, chill. You don't need that extra hustle. I got you. I'm able. This room is different, though. Miami is diverse, but it's salad bowl, not melting pot. Salad bowl, that's what the tomatoes are, cucumbers, lettuce, radishes, feisty, you know. Melting pot or sancocho, everything is just bleeding in there. That is not Miami. We know that. 
we know that and we're comfortable with that. We're comfortable with saying, you know, we just want all the black people in Miami Gardens and Brownsville and Overtown and the Goulds, you stay over there. We want all the white people on the east side. Grab Bellmead, grab Bell Harbor, grab the beach. We want all the Jews on the north side. And if you're Cuban, Kendall is yours. Really all of Miami, but you can keep Kendall. <laughs> and if you're Venezuelan, go ahead and head to Doral. And if you're Puerto Rican, get in where you fit in, maybe Alapata. We do this, yes? Am I lying? This is our city. And then in church, we do the exact same thing. The exact same thing. But because we're diverse and it looks different, we pat ourselves on the back. We're no different. We're no different at all. Difference is not the room you're in. Difference is your dinner table. It's the relationships you're connected to that can only be explained by the power of the gospel transforming a life and bringing people together in this unique institution, the family of God, the church, whereby we could say, oh yeah, that's my uncle, that's my brother, that's my cousin, and it's weird, but it's holy, because it's true. Now onto him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could think or ask to him be glory in the church. Yes? Chase the curiosity. Those three questions. Mal, if you just put them on the screen, please. If you hadn't written them down. As we meditate, as we process, would we chase well? Pray with me. Um, God, I think about that reimagination, and it just makes me grateful for reality, church, and the unique ways that you have brought their stories together um, for a work in this city. God, I, I think about our church. I, I think about the opportunities of other churches all across Miami and the world for that matter. God, will we step into who you've called us to be so that people don't get stepped over uh, or stepped on? Will we step into all of this so that we could show off all of who you are, the greatness of your name? Would stepping into who you've called us to be come from experiencing all of who you are though? Let's not forget that. We need strength for it. Strength is what you give. You're able. So we ask these things confidently and courageously. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.